0: Hello, and welcome to another podcast of U.S. History Repeated with Jimmy and Jean. This is Jimmy LaSalle. We have been building up to World War II, and as promised, here is our episode on Pearl Harbor. December 7th, 1941, a day of infamy. With all the details on the lead-up and the events of Pearl Harbor is our very own history expert, Gene Jean Anzanakis. Gene, take it away all yeah. right so today we're going to talk about the event that brings the united states into world war ii the attack at pearl harbor but before we can get into that faithful day of december 7th 1941 we have to get into the background a bit why did japan attack the united states at pearl harbor to begin with it's important to first consider the history between japan and the united states Political relations between the two countries have a complicated past. Unlike its Pacific neighbor, China, Japan had been successful in isolating itself from the Western world. China had what was called spheres of influences, and then they had an open door policy, which gave not only the United States the right to trade, but a number of European countries access to various trading ports throughout China. Japan, however, was isolated. That was until a man by the name of Commodore Matthew Perry. Perry was looking for an agreement which would at least open one Japanese port to trade and would secure the protection of American seamen and American property in Japan. At first, he was turned away. Commodore Matthew Perry threatened the use of force unless they permitted him to present his letter from the president of the United States, who at the time was Millard Fillmore. The Japanese had been so isolated that they were no match for the advanced weapons, for the ships that they saw at their harbor. Commodore Matthew Perry returned a few months later with an even larger envoy of ships And the Japanese officials had agreed to the majority of the terms or demands in the letter that Perry had presented during his first trip. And this is known as the Treaty of Kanagawa. No longer isolated, Japan very quickly modernized. Now, for history buffs out there, this time period is often referred to as the Meiji Restoration, a time where Japan modernized, they built up its military they improved in the areas of, in, of education, and of course, they industrialized. Now, Japan was very soon after involved in a number of wars, wars that they won with China and with Russia. Now, you see the same pattern throughout history. When a country industrializes, they then require more raw materials. If they don't have what they need, they will then acquire it by either trade And by force, Japan began to build an empire. By 1905, they had done just that. Japan's war with China began in 1937, eventually setting their sights on the whole of the Pacific. Now, this posed a threat to U.S. interests in the region. How does the United States respond? So the United States responds with an embargo, first with weapons, then steel and oil. What do you need to maintain an empire? You need steel, you need oil, you need weapons. Additionally, United States banks refused to give loans to Japanese businesses. And as tensions increased, President FDR ordered the Pacific Fleet to move from San Diego, California, to Hawaii. The thought process for Japan in attacking the United States was to force the United States' hand to end the embargo. Now, let's talk about Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor, the Hawaiian name is Puloa, and it was known to Native Hawaiians as Momi, meaning water of pearl. A number of countries were attracted to the area for the purpose of creating a naval base, but its shallow waters turned off countries like Great Britain and France. The harbor was acquired by the United States through the Reciprocity Treaty of 1875. At that time, Hawaii was its own kingdom. The Kingdom of Hawaii gave the United States the right to create and maintain a coaling and a repair station at Pearl Harbor. The United States didn't do much to the area until after the United States government annexed Hawaii in 1898. Now, I'm not getting into that today because we did a whole podcast on that earlier. Go back and take a listen to it if you haven't. Hawaii was known at the time as the Crossroads of the Pacific. The naval base was established at Pearl Harbor in 1908. Japan's victory in the Russo-Japanese War, which took place from 1904 to 1905, it persuaded the United States officials to make that area more suitable for a naval base in the Pacific. We're, We're seeing this growing power that is Japan, and we're saying, hmm, we need to be prepared. Congress approved a $3 million program to straighten the harbor and to complete a dry dock. Now, for those of you who don't know what a dry dock is, it's an area where ships can be built, they can be repaired, and where they can be maintained. The United States Navy created channels and they deepened the lock so that even the largest of Navy ships could be accommodated in the harbor. While tensions between the United States and Japan were at an all-time high, the two countries continued to negotiate. In early November of 1941, Japanese military officials made the call to militarily attack the United States and hinder its ability to stop Japanese expansion in the Pacific and hopefully urge the United States to negotiate a peace on better terms. Neither of those things happened. By the end of November of 1941, negotiations stopped. Naval communications show that there were warnings of an attack, but there was no specific location that had more of a threat than any other. The Japanese fleet headed towards Hawaii in total secrecy and consisted of six aircraft carriers, two battleships, three cruisers, and 11 destroyers the fleet stopped a few hundred miles north of the Hawaiian Islands. December 7th, 1941 was a Sunday. As the sun rose over the tranquil waters of the Hawaiian Islands, a fleet of Japanese aircraft appeared on the horizon, launching a relentless assault on the unsuspecting American naval base. The surprise attack came in waves with Bombs raining down on ships, on hangars, on barracks. The destruction was swift and it was devastating. The first wave of the attack began at 7.55 a.m. and it consisted of 200 planes. During the first wave, only six U.S. planes were able to get up in the air and to fight off the attack. The most important battleships and air bases were hit first. The first wave ended at 8.45 a.m. And just a few minutes later, the second wave of the attack began. Japanese forces attacked with precision, having memorized their targets of the mission. They had consistent practice and drilling. They were taking part in. A significant amount of reconnaissance was needed for this. And a man by the name of Takeo Yoshikawa made that possible. He was trained at the Imperial Japanese Naval Academy and got involved with Naval intelligence. He had become an expert on the US Navy. He was sent to Hawaii to pose as a vice counsel and rented an apartment that overlooked Pearl Harbor. He took meticulous notes on fleet movements and the security measures. The attack carried out with great care and planning It was aimed to cripple the U.S. Pacific fleet and to prevent American interference in Japanese expansion in the Pacific. In just two hours, the Japanese bombers and torpedo planes inflicted such severe damage on the fleet, sinking or either severely damaging eight battleships, including the USS Arizona. The loss of life during the attack was staggering with 2,403 Americans killed and over 1,000 injured. The USS Arizona in particular suffered a catastrophic fate as a bomb struck its deck, which ignited its forward magazine, and it caused a massive explosion that essentially engulfed the ship in flames. And nearly 1,177 crew members lost their lives that day and their remains are still entombed within that sunken ship. U.S. forces were completely unprepared, and in less than 90 minutes, more than 2,400 Americans were killed and 1,100 wounded. 21 ships of the Pacific fleet had been sunk or damaged, and 75% of the planes on the airfield surrounding Pearl Harbor were either damaged or destroyed. There are a number of stories from the devastating attack on Pearl Harbor. Every battleship has their stories of both devastation and heroism. 429 men were killed on the USS Oklahoma, including three brothers, the Barber brothers. Typically... The United States military wouldn't station brothers together in the same place, but because it was peacetime, the military agreed to their request for the brothers to be assigned to the same ship. The USS West Virginia, that ship was launched in the 1920s and the captain of the USS West Virginia, a man by the name of Captain Mervyn S. Bennion, was disemboweled by a piece of flowing shrapnel. And he refused medical attention and he ordered his crew to get to safety and to work to sink the ship upright. That ship was able to be repaired. And by 1944, it was repaired and it was involved in a number of battles in the Pacific as well as being present in Tokyo Bay when Japanese officials signed the terms of surrender and it was placed there as a symbol of the resilience of the U.S. Navy. Now, most people know, or I hope you know, that there is a national memorial at Pearl Harbor. If you ever go, the USS Arizona Memorial is something to see. It's one of the most famous battleships that was destroyed in the attack. The ship had a crew of over 1,500 men. Almost all of them were killed. The ship was built in 1916 in Brooklyn, New York at the Brooklyn Navy Yard. The real name of the Brooklyn Navy Yard is actually called the New York Navy Yard, and it was established during the presidency of John Adams. So there is a fun fact for you New Yorkers, especially you Brooklynites listening. The USS Arizona was used as a training ship during World War I. There were some planes on the USS Arizona, but they were, for the most part, spotting planes and they would radio back information as to what they saw. They would land in the water next to the ship and cranes would put them back onto the ship. There were four triple turrets on board. These were massive guns that required about 80 men each to operate and the massive shells and gunpowder bags were stored underneath. So you can imagine when a bomb hit one of those turrets and landed in the place where they stored the gunpowder bags and the massive shells. It was a massive explosion. The USS Arizona was hit by a number of bombs, but one of the bombs landed by the turrets. This caused a massive explosion and the ship sunk in minutes. About half of the casualties from the attack were lost on the USS Arizona. Some of the survivors of the USS Arizona have actually had their cremated remains brought back and placed inside of the ship to be entombed with their fallen brothers. And if you go to Pearl Harbor today, you can visit the beautiful memorial for the U.S. Arizona and see portions of the ship that are above the waterline. Today, the wreckage of the USS Arizona lies beneath the surface of Pearl Harbor and it serves as a tomb for those brave sailors. It stands as a solemn testament to the sacrifice and the reminder of the cost of human war. Construction on that memorial began in 1958, and the memorial was completed and opened to the public on Memorial Day in 1962. It stands as a white concrete structure spanning over the sunken battleship, and it allows visitors to walk above the remains of the ship. The memorial features this beautiful marble wall that's inscribed with the names of all the crew members who lost their lives that day. In the aftermath of the devastating attack on Pearl Harbor, you can imagine there was shock and anger that rippled across the nation like a tidal wave. Americans from all walks of life were really united in their disbelief and in their outrage at this unprovoked assault. On their own soil. And the peaceful tranquility of their daily lives was shattered in an instant, and it's replaced by this profound sense of vulnerability, but also by betrayal. And news of the attack spread rapidly as radio broadcasts, newspaper headlines, and of course word-of-mouth accounts brought the shocking reality of Pearl Harbor into the living rooms of millions of Americans. You know, families gathered around their radios, listening to updates on the unfolding tragedy. Crowds gathered in front of the White House that very same day, awaiting news of how the country was going to respond to such an attack. And the crowds outside of the White House sang, God Bless America. And the words, the lyrics could be heard inside the White House. As the enormity of the devastation sunk in, You know, citizens grappled with a mix of emotions, grief for the lives lost and the heroes who bravely fought, anger towards the attackers and a determination to seek justice, to defend their country from coast to coast. The nation is mourning their fellow Americans, but there is also this resolve to stand together in the face of this unprecedented aggression and fight back. Pearl Harbor awakened a sleeping giant, and the American people were determined to retaliate. For FDR, he referred to that day as a day of infamy. And the day after the attack, Franklin Delano Roosevelt went before Congress and asked them to declare war on the Empire of Japan, signaling the United States' official entry into World War II. Okay. And just like that, here we go. Like we mentioned previously, we are going to be covering World War II for a good number of episodes. Next up, a few episodes on Japanese internment camps. Thank you for listening to U.S. History Repeated with Jimmy and Gene. Tell your friends about our podcast and where you learn all this great stuff about U.S. history. Follow us on social media and get onto our email list to learn about special events. They're coming up again. There's always more to learn. Talk to you soon.